Well, I'm so glad that you are with us this morning, whether you are physically here uh, present or whether you are watching online, we are delighted that you are a part of our worship service this morning. And I have a question for you. When life gets painful and difficult, how do you respond? How does your faith engage when it feels like times are getting really desperate? We need to talk about that this morning. Two friends were on a hike in rural Pennsylvania when they came over a hilltop and looked down and saw one of those uh, perfect pictures of a Pennsylvania barn. And on that barn, on the top of it, was a wind vane And the top of the wind vane had these three words, God is love. One of the friends turned to the other and said he thought that was a rather inappropriate place uh, for such a message. You know, obviously wind vanes are changeable, but God's love is always constant. To which his friend replied, I don't agree with you. I think you're misunderstanding the message. That sign is indicating the truth that regardless of the way the wind blows, God is love. Tuck that away, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. We're in a series called a, or An Uncommon Life. For despite most appearances that we all are living small lives of little or no consequence, the reality is that in and through our ordinary routines, our Monday to Saturdays, God is powerfully at work to blend our our small little story up into his larger story that literally creates history. Now, last week in Ruth chapter 1, we witnessed a uh, a, a five-category hurricane or a category five hurricane coming ashore into the lives of this family. And under the painful, unrelenting winds, literally Naomi loses her husband, Then she loses both of her sons, and she is stripped of all financial resources and stability. How many of us wonder about the love of God when the wind's direction and its ferocity just wound us deeply? As we come to chapter 2, and I hope you have your Bibles and have turned to Ruth already, As we come to chapter 2, initially the vivid harshness of life has really not changed whatsoever. Naomi and Ruth, as you come to chapter 1, survey the landscape of their lives, and the storm has literally leveled everything. Now, they've done the right thing, as we saw last week, to return to where they should be, but there isn't an immediate remedy for the pain that they are experiencing. These two women don't feel it. They can't see it. They can't even sense it. But the weather vane over their lives is beginning to shift slightly. All they know as you come into chapter 2 is that their lives have turned out unfortunately bad. And there are two aspects as we look in chapter 2 of how bad life is for them. First of all, they are in a very vulnerable position. Remember Naomi's words back in chapter 1 and verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty. Okay, let that sink in again, especially the word 
empty. These two have nothing. Naomi is not only financially bankrupt, she's emotionally and spiritually running on fumes. She's depleted. They've returned, as we've noticed, to where they need to be, but they've got no prospects for a livelihood. They have no means of support. Folks, vulnerability is very unnerving. Now, the second thing that reveals how bad it is is that they are in a very humble position. Look at how chapter 2 and verse 2 states it. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. Ruth has the intention to go out and literally just to pick up the leftovers. Now, again, remember, the economy is doing well for everybody else. Rains have come, the harvest is good, and so, or not and so, but these two women, they're not in a position to benefit from it. Everybody else is out reaping. People own fields of grain, and it's time to bring the harvest in. Ruth, she's going out to glean. And folks, there is a big difference between reaping and gleaning. If your Bible is, just hold your finger here in Ruth 1, turn east in your Bible backwards a little bit to the book of Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's something there in verse 19 that we need to be reminded of. Part of the Old Testament teaching about gleaning. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, Moses writes and says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Gleaning. That's going out into the fields after the harvesters have done their work and hoping to pick up some stray grain that, ha- that they have missed. Gleaning. It's, getting, it's, it's working the field down on your hands and knees, fingering through the dirt, hoping to find maybe a dried stalk that was overlooked, and on it is going to be some grain that you can pick off. Gleaning is for the down and outers of that day. It's for the orphans, it's for the widows, it's for the foreigners in the land. That's why I say gleaning is picking up the leftovers. You kind of sense the picture that chapter 2 has given us here at the start? Can you imagine what that would be like in our day? That is being reduced to dumpster diving in our day. That's looking through the trash for something to eat that others have already thrown away. They don't think is worth it. Now, understand, gleaning is not shopping at the bargain rack. When you're gleaning, you're not even going through a rack of clothes that others have worn and have now on consignment are trying to sell. No, gleaning is rummaging around in the county dump. That's gleaning. And when a person is in a position of having to pick through trash to try to survive, folks, life is hard. But the day begins to then turn now to be unexpectedly good, starting in verse 4. Ruth is the central character in the story so far. She's a foreigner in Israel. 
And she, as a foreigner, would be very unfamiliar with the teachings of the Old Testament about who God is and how his people are to behave. As we would say where I was raised, she does not know diddly squat. And yet, what does verse 3 tell us? Well, Ruth ends up in the field belonging to Boaz. Now, it's interesting how in verse 1, the writer of Ruth uses a convention of, of, of narrative literature called dramatic irony. In other words, we as the readers are informed about something that the characters in the story don't even know yet. We're told in verse 1, Boaz is a close relative. Ooh, put your finger up. The wind is beginning to change direction. Yet even in verse 7, we can see how things are changing. That even before Boaz arrives, Ruth has asked and is now being allowed to glean in the field right behind the reapers. Okay, this is good, but it gets even better. Watch. Boaz now arrives on the scene to see how the harvesting is going in his field. And he sees this woman over there on her hands and knees gleaning, and he asks the foreman, the foreman, who is she? Once he learns that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law from Moab, do you notice the two things that he does for her? Very powerful. First, Boaz provides opportunity without rescue. Look at verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 2. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now again, notice that phrase, keep close to my young women. Some of your translations say, follow after the girls. In other words, what's happening here? The young men are taking their sharp sickles and they're cutting the wheat down and then just letting it drop. Then the women are coming in behind them, gathering up in their arms a, a bunch of these stalks into what's called sheaves, a bundle, tying them up and then standing them vertically in the field to continue to dry. For Ruth to follow the girls, that's going to give her the best opportunity to spot a stalk on the ground that did not make it into a bundle or individual pieces of grain that as they did that work and made the, the sheaf for individual grain parts that have fallen off onto the ground. But notice, Ruth is not given the grain. She has to work for it. But Boaz is making it a lot easier for her without supplying it to her at no cost. And by the way, did you notice his gracious sly tactic in verse 15? What does he say there? So when she rose to glean, this is after lunch, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. <laughs> See, this is opportunity, but without rescue. But he does something more. He does a second thing for her. Notice that Boaz provides stability without indignity. 
Ruth is invited to work his fields all through the harvest. And this gives Ruth a sense of stability. She knows that every morning she can come to where the workers of Boaz are and she will be received. See, being in a position of gleaning is humbling enough. And Boaz doesn't further damage her pride. Instead, by sharing lunch, by sharing water, by honoring her commitment to to Naomi, Boaz is brought a much-needed sense of stability into her life at this time. Oh, and the results? The result is that these two women have a glimmer now of hope, an unusual glimmer of hope. How do we see that that hope comes? Well, first, Ruth threshes the barley and heads home, and hope can be seen in the amount of grain that she brings home. Look at verse 17. She ends up with an ephah of grain. That's about 30 pounds of barley. Folks, that is an enormous amount of grain for a gleaner to gather in one day. Naomi, when she sees that, she is so surprised. Notice what she asks in in verse 19. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. See, hope is seen, and it's not just in the amount of, 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 of that was gleaned, but secondly, hope is seen in the possibility of being redeemed. Look at how verse 19 continues. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, notice, we're reminded again, Ruth is totally clueless about who Boaz is to them. And it's only at this point that that nickel drops for Naomi. Now, they are both aware of what we were made aware of in verse 1. See, into Naomi's dark world, has finally come the first glimmer of hope. It's a breath of fresh air. Her soul has been so deeply troubled for such a long time, and this is the first piece of good news that she has received. Notice there in verse 20 how she ends up by saying that this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Some of your translations say kinsman redeemer. That whole concept is God's way in the Old Testament of preserving and protecting family lines. You can go if you want to at some uh, this afternoon to Leviticus chapter 25, where it describes how the close relatives in a family were to take specific action. So if, if a family member became a slave, the extended family was to redeem or purchase them back. If a family member had to sell their land just to make ends meet, then the clan was to get together and buy the land back and keep it in the family. If a husband died with no male heirs, like we saw last week with Elimelech, the the next youngest son was to marry the widow to raise up a son to continue the family name. So the whole concept here of kinsman redeemer is that your closest kin was to help redeem or rescue you. 
Now, we're going to come back to that because it's going to start popping up in the next couple of weeks as we continue in our study of Ruth. So Naomi recognizes Boaz is one of their kinsmen redeemers. There are several who could help redeem or rescue them out of their situation, and Boaz is one in that group. So as chapter 2 ends, we are now brought to the point where we can see the, the point of this whole chapter. For the writer of, of, of this book is doing something very powerful and very purposeful. Because at first glance of chapter 2, it looks like the main characters are Ruth and Boaz and their interaction with each other. It appears that the movement of the story so far is revolving just around those two. But in fact, everything that happens in chapter 2 has got the fingerprints of God all over it. Only the writer chooses to keep God in the shadows and off the center stage. The human instruments are clearly seen, but behind Ruth and Boaz is the unmistakable working of God. So what's the point of the chapter? What's the transferable truth that begins to come at us here living in 2020? Well, let me state it like this. In our dark days, when life is harsh and we're feeling more helpless than we are hopeful, then as an act of faith, just do the next thing. And as an act of love, God will show up. You see, the same God that brought Naomi back empty is now in the process of caring for her needs. And there are several very key expressions of faith that we're going to look at in just a moment. And in response to faith being expressed, God moves. And the way He moves and the manner in which He moves reveals His love for His people. For what God did for Naomi and Ruth, my friends, He'll do for us. He's delighted when He sees us act out of faith. For when life is hard, it's really easy just to get paralyzed, just to kind of freeze. And that's when it's so important to exercise faith and just do the next thing. And that may mean getting dressed in the morning instead of just staying in your pajamas as you'd like to. It may mean going to work or going to the grocery store when you'd rather not. Preparing a meal, working in the yard, making that phone call. And our God will in turn respond because He loves us and He loves seeing even those quiet expressions of faith. And it is that truth that reveals the impact of chapter 2 for us. I'd like to suggest that there are at least three ways, three practical ways in which this story touches each one of us this morning. For life is going to bring those times when our hope tank is only filled with fumes. We don't have a whole lot left. We're depleted like a Naomi. We're shocked like uh, a Ruth. And we wonder, God, do you love me? And we wonder if the wind is ever going to change direction in our lives. Well, first, this story helps us realize that no matter what, 
God is worth trusting. At the start of chapter 2, it's pretty safe to say that Naomi does not understand what God is doing. She can't explain him. All she can do is complain to him. How many here have been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt from that kind of time? And yet, as we saw last week in chapter 1, in the midst of bitter circumstances, Ruth is wrestling with God but doesn't reject him. It is a bold, audacious faith. Now, she does return home to be in the right place, even though everything isn't working out real well at the moment. And yet, look closely at verse 20 of chapter 2. In response to finding out from Ruth that this guy by the name of Boaz uh, is the one that was of help to her, what is her response? Verse 21 Oh, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Who is she referring to? She's not talking about God. She's talking about, I mean, she's not talking about Boaz. She's talking about God. God is the one who has not stopped showing kindness to her. The very God who stripped everything away from her is still considered by Naomi to be a God of kindness. And by the way, that word kindness is key in this whole book. Excuse me, one of the keys in this whole book. For that word kindness literally means a loyal love, a determined, committed kind of love. And Naomi is beginning to see that God is being loyal in love towards her. He, yes, he is a God who can empty, but he's also a God who can bless us richly kind of reminds us of what Job said, doesn't it? In Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. God wants us, his people, to trust him. He wants us to exercise faith. You see, if I can figure God out, if I can always explain and make sense of what He is doing, that doesn't take any faith in. Faith is continuing to trust when it doesn't make sense and we can't explain what God is doing or why He is doing it, especially when we suffer painful loss. God is worthy of our trust no matter what. Which leads us to the second impact that I would suggest for you this morning that comes right out of chapter 2, and that is our beliefs reveal themselves through our behavior. All through this chapter, we see that what people believe shows up in the way they behave. So in chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth decides to go out and glean. She was probably told that this was God's way of providing for the down and outers, so she decides to act on faith and go see if it works. Boaz, when he finally speaks to Ruth in verse 11 and verse 12, what is she, how is she complimented? Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. 
and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Notice, Boaz sees these behavioral steps of faith in Ruth, and he compliments her for it. And Boaz himself, he expresses faith. In verse 13, Ruth says that he, she has found favor in his eyes. That word favor can also be translated grace. In other words, Boaz is treating her in a way she does not deserve. See, Boaz knows. He knows the Old Testament teaching about gleaning. He knows that gleaners were only to come into the field after the reapers were done with their work. So Boaz, what's he doing? He's going well beyond what's required. He lets Ruth glean right among the workers. He feeds her lunch. He gives her water. He tells his servants to slyly drop grain for her. See, Boaz is expressing kindness. He's expressing loyal love in dealing with Ruth. Why does he do it? Because it's all part of his faith in the God of Israel. What we believe will be seen in our behavior. When I wrestle with stuff like that in the week before I preach it, then all kinds of disturbing questions start to come to my mind. Like, how am I loving others? And do I give them what the letter of the law dictates? Or do I really love extravagantly? I mean, how many here have, have, have struggled and been challenged to love others right here among in this body, just even in recent times? Okay, that's too convicting. Let's move on. I love the way Ephesians chapter 5, in the paraphrase, the message, really puts the challenge out in front of us. Listen to how Eugene Peterson translates this. He says, mostly what God does is love you. So keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. See, I read stuff like that and I start to squirm. But how do I extend grace to other people? Do I take the word of God at face value and obey it? Am I, what am I willing to give up and abandon in order to take refuge under the wings of the living God? No matter what God's worth trusting. And by its absence or by its presence, our, my faith and all of our faith is revealed by our behavior. Let me give you a third practical idea to think about from this chapter. And that is God's care is seen in the events that just happened. Did you notice the... Uh, series of coincidences that, that occurred in, in chapter 2. Ruth just happened to be gleaning in the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz just happened to be a potential kinsman redeemer for the family. Boaz just happened to show up that morning uh, to check on the harvest. And Boaz just happened to notice Ruth and, and to speak to her. Again, go back to verse 3 of chapter 2. 
It says that Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. See that little phrase, she happened? Some of your translations say, as it turned out. Literally, that little Hebrew phrase there is expressing that man does not control events, but the hand of God is behind them all, working his purposes out. Yeah, God's definitely at work in this chapter. Even though there are no angels that appear, even though there's no impressive miracles, even though there's no awesome display of power, divine power. Hey, did you know that that's, that's how God works most of the time? We are the ones who want to see something spectacular, but God most often is just working through the ordinary because he doesn't have to be in the spotlight to be effective. And he often chooses to remain in the shadows, moving in the normal and routine events to meet our needs out of his love. Our Heavenly Father invites us to see how our unfolding story is to be a journey with Him. Someone described it this way. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I died. He was out there sort of like a president. Uh, I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Jesus, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Jesus was in the back helping me pedal. Now, I don't know exactly when it was that he suggested we take change places but life has not been the same since. When I had control, oh, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but it was predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. And it was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he'd say, pedal! And I worried, and I was anxious, and I asked, where are you taking me? And he just laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. <laughs> I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say to him, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. I did not trust him at first with control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners, knows how to jump to clear high rocks, knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest of places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he just smiles and says, pedal. In your story, 
right now, right here. As an act of faith, do the next thing. And as an act of love, God will show you.